All right, good evening, Hume Lake. How are we doing tonight? Right on. If you have a Bible with you, go ahead and grab that. We're going to be in Daniel chapter 1. Daniel chapter 1, as we pick up our story tonight, we've got a lot of ground to cover, so I'm going to jump straight in. Daniel chapter 1, let me remind you of the verses we read this morning. Daniel 1.1 says this. In the third year of the reign of King Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the articles from the temple of God, those he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia and put in the treasure house of his God. So you remember what we established this morning. We established there was a great war between the people of Judah, the kingdom of Judah and the kingdom of Babylon, the empire of Babylon. God picks a winner and he doesn't pick his covenant and holy people. Instead, he picks Babylon. Why? Because God is who he is and you do not get a vote. Because God is in heaven and he does everything he pleases. So he chooses to do that. And what happens is the people of Judah are exiled to Babylon. They are taken from their homeland. They are brought into Babylon. And they are brought into a place that is three things. It is uncomfortable. It is unfriendly. It is uncompromising. They are in exile. And then we establish that we as followers of Jesus live in the same type of place, an uncomfortable, unfriendly, uncompromising culture that's all around us. And the question for us this week is how do we stay faithful followers of Yahweh, faithful followers of Jesus in the midst of the culture all around us? How do we build the resilience into us that allows us to walk faithfully despite the culture that is all around us? And tonight, tonight we get the opportunity to think about that deeply. Tonight we get the opportunity to see the first story of Daniel and how he lives and operates in this culture. So in your Bibles here, verse 3, here's what I want you to see. It says, Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, chief of his court officials, to bring to the king's service some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility, young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed and quick to understand and qualified to serve in the king's palace. He was to teach them the language and the literature of the Babylonians. The king assigned them to a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. And they were to be trained for three years. And after that, they were enter into, entering into the king's service. So the first thing I want you to notice here, right here in verse 4, my translation says that these are young men. When it says that they are young men, one of the things I need all of us to get a grip on this week is that when we think of Daniel, do not think of some grown man. In fact, the historical evidence tells us that Daniel and his friends were likely teenagers. In other words, this is the story of a bunch of 17-year-olds. This is not the story of some older person doing some bigger thing. This is the story of a young man and how this young man operates in a culture that is uncomfortable, that is unfriendly, that is uncompromising. Again, Daniel is a young man. He's probably 17 years old. And then you see the strategy that Babylon has here. The strategy is simple. Let's go find some young people. Let's find the handsome ones, the smart ones, the successful and well-liked ones. And what we'll do is we'll bring them in and we'll teach them our language. We'll teach them our culture. We'll teach them our religion. We'll teach them all these things. And in the process of teaching them things, we're going to give them some free stuff. See, everyone else has to figure out food on their own, but we're going to give them some food. And we're going to give them wine. And not just any food and any wine, but it's food and wine from the king's table so you know that it's the best. And do you know why Babylon did this? This is a curious thing, right? Why take a few of these Israelites and like pour all these resources and time and energy and money into them? And the answer is simple. 
Because the idea is if we get a few of them to come to the king's service and we shape them and form them and teach them all the things about Babylon, they'll turn around and go back to their community and teach them all about those things. And it's a curious thing, isn't it? How the world never really changes. Does this sound familiar to you? You take well-liked, attractive, successful, smart, intelligent people, you give them a bunch of free stuff, and they go influence everyone around them to go buy into the free stuff. These are like the original social media influencers here. And this is the wild thing about the Bible. The Bible doesn't just tell you what happened, it tells you what always happens. This is how it always works. Always and forever, here's how humans work. We gather people around us, we give them free stuff, we try to shape and mold them into the way we want them to be, and then we send them back to their friends so that they can influence them. This is not just what happened to Daniel, it's what always happens. And here's why this is important for you. You need to be aware that just like the Babylonians, we're trying to shape and form and disciple and change the minds of these young Israelites. Somebody is doing that for you. And if you're a Christian, the hope and the desire is that somebody is your local church, that is Jesus himself, that is God's word, that is shaping and forming and discipling and developing you. But I need to be clear, even if you are not being formed and discipled by Jesus, you are being discipled by someone. And here's how you will know who you are being discipled by, who you are being formed by, who you are being shaped and molded by. You will know who you are being shaped and molded by, by what you consider normal. By what you consider normal. Like, let me put it this way. So growing up in my house, we didn't watch a lot of television. There were a lot of other kids watching Nickelodeon or watching Disney Channel, watching like kids shows, but we didn't watch a lot of TV. In my house growing up, we watched two things. We watched sports, which a lot of you watch, and we watched the news. So even as a young kid, I was not watching Nickelodeon, I was not watching a lot of Disney, I was watching the news. And so growing up, that was normal for me. It was normal that you don't watch these silly little kids shows, but you're informed on the politics and the movements and the economy of the day. And when I got to college and talked to people about my childhood, I realized how weird that was, that I didn't watch kids' shows as a kid. I watched the news. But for me, that was normal growing up. Or like at my house growing up, my dad always mowed the lawn. That was like a normal thing every Saturday. He's out there sweating with a lawnmower, pushing it across my yard. That was a normal thing. So when I became an adult and my wife first suggested to me that we actually pay someone else to mow our lawn, I thought that was the craziest thing I've ever heard. Because you know what dads do? They mow the lawn. And here's what happens. We become shaped and formed by someone or something. And then we will know how we are being shaped and formed by what becomes normal to us. Like when I was in college, I worked for a Christian camp. And on that Christian camp, I very quickly learned in the first couple days, I'd wake up in the morning tired and groggy and looking for breakfast and coffee. But then what I realized is almost no one else was looking for breakfast and coffee. I looked around and all the people who worked on the camp were outside of their bunks and they were sitting there reading the Bible first thing in the morning. The sun was still rising up in the sky. They hadn't even gotten to breakfast or coffee yet, but they were reading the Bible. And that became normal to me. That just became like a normal thing. Like, of course you would do that first thing in the morning because that's how I was being formed and shaped and discipled. And again, my contention tonight is that you are being formed and shaped and discipled by someone. And the question is, what's normal to you? You know what's normal to a lot of teenagers? What's normal to a lot of teenagers is having songs loaded up on your phone that are filled with sexuality, filled with vulgarity, filled with words you have no business saying, much less putting into your ears through your headphones. 
And some of you have these songs on your phone and you don't think it's a big deal because it's normal. You don't think it's a big deal because it's on the Spotify top 100. You don't think it's a big deal because all your friends are listening to those songs. You are being shaped and formed by our culture. You are being discipled by our culture. You know what some of you do? Some of you are sexually active with your boyfriend, with your girlfriend, and you don't think it's a big deal at all. Because everyone you know is doing that, and your family members, they don't think it's a really big deal, and everyone around you doesn't think it's a big deal. And so church people get up and say, no, 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 this is actually something God has reserved for the beauty of marriage. It is a good, right, holy thing for marriage. And that sounds weird to your ears, because you have been discipled and formed by a culture that sees sex as cheap and worthless. So that's what's happened to you. For others of you, others of you, you found yourself in a place that I found myself in years ago. Years ago, I found myself in a place where wherever I disagreed with someone, my goal was to destroy them because I was good at talking and I could get really loud and passionate as you can see. And so my goal is if you disagreed with me, I would just drive you into the ground verbally until you lost and I won. And you know what was happening in that moment? I was being discipled and formed by a culture that says there is no compromise. You must agree with me or you are my enemy and I will destroy you. So here's what I want you to know in your life. Whatever you consider normal, average, ordinary, everyone does this. Everyone talks this way, dresses this way, thinks this way, acts this way, talks to their parents this way, talks to their friends this way, everyone does camps this way. Anything you consider normal, you have been discipled and shaped and formed. And it's so significant that you get this at the beginning of the story. See, Daniel understands this. Daniel knows exactly what the Babylonians are trying to do. He knows they are trying to shape and form and mold and disciple him into being one of the Babylonians. And he goes, I will not let that be normal. I will not let that happen. And my concern for so many of you, like I said this morning, you're just that jellyfish floating on the top of the tide. You're floating with the water. And wherever it goes, you just go, that's normal. And when it comes to the TV shows you watch, the words that come out of your mouth, the way you behave with one another, the way you treat your parents, the way you operate in this life, my question for you is what has become normal? Because whatever is normal to you, that is what you've been discipled toward. Verse 6 goes on this way. It says, among those who were chosen were some from Judah. And now we're going to meet the main characters of our story. Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. The chief official gave them new names. To Daniel, the name Belteshazzar. To Hananiah, Shadrach. To Mishael, Meshach. And to Azariah, Abednego. So, so notice what happens here right away. What are the Babylonians trying to do? They're trying to shape and form and disciple and create and imprint their way of being upon these young men. And what's the first thing they do? They bring them into the king's service and then they do the very most fundamental thing you can do to shape and form someone, and that's to rename them. Do you know that the most basic thing about you is your name? Like the most basic thing about you, before anything else was chosen about you, before anything else happened, your parents gave you a name. And that name is how you have identified through your whole life. That's why if your name's John and I say John, you heard that in a different way than someone's name's Bill. If I say Bill and your name is John, you don't really care. But I say your name and suddenly you're alert, you're awake, you're aware. Why? It's just fundamental to who you are. And the very first things that the Babylonians did was rename these men from their Jewish names to Babylonian names. See, the very first thing they did is try to change their identity, change how they see themselves, change who they think they actually are. And child of God, I need you to know our culture does the exact same thing. Our culture is obsessed with telling you lies about you that aren't actually true. Our culture loves to say things like, you're an accident, we're all an accident. We just evolved out of nowhere, it was a big bang, it's all a cosmic accident, there's no purpose, there's no meaning, your life means nothing, so just enjoy it while it lasts. 
And that is a lie. You were specially created on purpose and for a purpose by a God who sees you, knows you, and knits you together in your mother's womb. We live in a culture that tells you that the most important thing about you is what you feel on the inside. And so whatever you feel, whatever your sense, your internal sense of it, the culture just says that's what's most important about you. And you need to reject that lie and say that's not who I am. The most important thing about me is not what is inside of me. It is the one who created me and what he says about my life. He created me. He gets to dictate how I live. Again, you get down to the very root of it. And what the culture, what the world around you is trying to do is the same thing Babylon was trying to do. The Bible doesn't just describe what happens, it describes what always happens. They are trying to shape you, trying to form you into a type of person who will agree with them and advance their agenda. Here in verse 8 it says this. It says, but Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine. And he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself this way. So Daniel has this burden, this concern, to not defile himself is what the text says. And it's an interesting thing because scholars actually kind of debate why Daniel actually decided not to take the food and the wine. There are certain Jewish laws around food, certain things they are or are not supposed to do. It's not really a law against wine. Maybe the food was pork. They're not supposed to eat pork in the Jewish religion. Whatever this is, somehow Daniel looks at this food and looks at this wine and goes, I'm not buying into this. And for me personally, I don't think it was a food law he was really obsessed about. I think it's exactly what we're talking about tonight. It's this burden he has that he wouldn't be shaped and formed and molded into a Babylonian, that he would remain distinctly Jewish, distinctly part of God's covenant people. And so here's what happens. Daniel's brought into the court, and immediately he rejects the easiest thing to take. If you are a starving, hungry, thirsty person, you know what the easiest thing for you in the world to have is? Food. They're like, here's a table full of food. You're a starving refugee who's been dragged here from another country. Would you like some? And Daniel says no. And you know why I think Daniel had the fortitude to say no? You know why I think Daniel had the ability to say no? Because I think Daniel decided long before he ever got to that table in the palace what he was going to do. And if you are going to be a person who resolves yourself not to be formed by this culture, not to be discipled and shaped and imprinted by this culture, you need to do this, write down these words, you need to decide ahead of time. You need to decide ahead of time based on who you are, based on whose you are, based on how God has created you and the purpose he's created you for, you need to decide before you step into situations what kind of life you are going to lead. You need to decide ahead of time. When things come at you, you know how you're going to live. It's like this. So a couple weeks ago, my wife and I had a return we had to do at the mall um, in Thousand Oaks in the town we live in. Uh, and so we knew we needed to do this return. It was her return, but I was coming along for the ride and bringing the kids. And I was bringing the kids because the kids love the mall. Because at the mall, there's this little play place. And it's this tiny little thing, but to them, it's heaven. They think it's the greatest place in the world, and so we go there. But here's the problem with us going to the mall. The problem with us going to the mall is that most times when we go to the mall, they get to go to one of their favorite restaurants in the world. And one of their favorite restaurants in the world is a little place called Wetzel's Pretzels. Oh, yeah. I just think about it right now. It just stirs my heart. And so, 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 um, we get them pretzels. Actually, we do the pretzel bites for them because they love the pretzel bites. And then we do a little thing that we as the Howard family like to call a pretzel picnic. So what we do is we get the pretzels and we go find like a little area and we actually like sit on the ground at the mall. I know we look strange, but you know, we resolve to be different. Um, and we sit on the ground and, and we eat the pretzels and it's like a kid's favorite thing. So every time we go to the mall, what do they want to do? A pretzel picnic. 
But this time we were going to the mall to make a return. And in this particular time, in this particular season, we were like, mm, we're trying to save some money and not spend a little bit more money. So we're going to go to the mall. They're going to get to play. But then my wife and I looked each other in the eyes and said, whatever happens, whatever they say, however charming they look, whatever fit they throw, we are not getting them pretzels. We decided ahead of time. So we go to the mall. And they play in the play place. And I'm watching after them. And my wife goes and makes the return. She comes back. They're still playing. And then they turn to us with the most predictable of questions. Now, kids, when they want something, they'll go one of two roads. They will either throw themselves on the floor and start screaming, which they know is embarrassing to you. And so a lot of times parents are just like, I'll give you whatever you want. You're just to stop embarrassing me, right? Or they will go with the charm offensive. They will look up to you. And they will look to you with this little look in their face like, how could you deny me good things, daddy? I love you. That's the direction my daughter decides to go with. Somehow in one of her television shows, she learned the phrase teensy-weensy. And here's what she said. Dad, could I have a teensy-weensy little pretzel? <laughs> oh, and I told you earlier, she's like my princess and I want to give her anything. But here's what had happened. My wife and I decided beforehand it wasn't going to work. And so we had to steal ourselves and fight through this little cute, adorable five-year-old asking for a teensy-weensy little pencil. And we decided not to do it. But here's the only reason it worked. Because we decided ahead of time. Because if we hadn't decided ahead of time, she would have looked at us and been like, a teensy-weensy. I'd be like, whatever you want, let's go. So what happens? When you decide ahead of time, you have the fortitude to make the decision you actually want to make. You actually get to decide what you want most, not just what you want now. Because for Daniel, what he wanted now was food, but what he wanted most was to be faithful to Yahweh. And so what you need to do is decide ahead of time how you're gonna behave. Raise your hand if you're a senior, senior, senior in high school. Okay, within a year, shh. Se seniors, shh. within one year, you will be heading off to college. And here's what I need you to know, those of you who are going off to college, you will get to college and immediately temptation will come to you. It's not like you get to wait two weeks or you'll just kind of be settling in and everything will be chill. Immediately, someone will put before you choices that are not consistent with being a follower of Jesus. And you need to decide ahead of time for college, what kind of person are you going to be? Are you going to walk in holiness or are you going to walk in hedonism? Are you going to walk in following faithfulness to Jesus or are you just going to do your own thing? Because you get to decide. But what you need to do is decide ahead of time. I'm going to walk in holiness. I'm going to be different. I'm going to find a church. I'm going to plug in with the Bible study. Seniors, please, please, please spend your senior year deciding ahead of time what it's going to be. For those of you going back, some of you are going back into a family situation. You're going back into a life situation with friends where there's temptation and difficulties. You know what you need to spend this week doing? Deciding ahead of time what Saturday is going to look like. Far too many people come up to camp, have a great emotional high with God at camp, and they're on the bus on the way back. They're like, now what do I do? That's a ridiculous way to live. You decide ahead of time what it's going to be. You know an amazing thing you can decide ahead of time too? Do you know that no matter what, no matter how good your friends are, no matter how awesome your family is, no matter how wonderful who you marry is, do you know that people are going to hurt you in this life? They're going to let you down. They're going to wound you. They're going to betray you. They're going to hurt you in ways you can't even imagine. You know what I want you to do right now? I want you to decide ahead of time that you are going to choose forgiveness when people wound you. I want you to decide that ahead of time. To decide ahead of time, the next time someone wounds me, I'm not just going to live in bitterness and anger and revenge and rage. I'm instead going to choose forgiveness. T tomorrow at 4 p.m., I'm doing one of these optional seminars. You don't have to come to this, um, but I'm going to be doing that on forgiveness. And if you go, someone has wounded me and I don't know how to forgive, that's what the whole seminar is. It's how to forgive when someone's wounded you. But you need to decide ahead of time that that's going to be your posture. You decide to be different. You decide to forgive. You decide to be generous. 
You know that someday, some of you, this is cool to say, some of you are going to make hundreds of thousands of dollars a year someday. You're going to be rich. Decide now that you're going to be generous even when you're poor. And then when you are rich, it will be easy for you to give away money. What does Daniel do? He decides ahead of time. He resolves himself. I'm not going to take what I want most, what I want now, which is food and wine. I'm going to choose what I want most, and that is faithfulness to Yahweh. It is the life God has called me to on purpose and for a purpose. Verse 9 goes on this way. It says, now God caused the official to show favor and compassion to Daniel. And I love this verse. Because this verse shatters the way I think God should behave. You know how most of us think God should behave? Most of us think God should create the world, let the world run, and we get to make our choices and he's never going to interfere with our life. In fact, I've had young people say to me, God would never interfere with someone's free will. And I just go, come with me here. Let's reread this verse. Now God caused the official to show favor and compassion to Daniel. He sure as well did. He changed his mind. God stepped in and he changed this person and he made this official make a decision that he wouldn't have otherwise made. And that bothers some of you because the way some of you see God is the way you would be God. You're like, well, if I was God, I would never interfere. That's nice, but he is who he is. You don't get a vote. Here's what I see about God. God can step in and do whatever he wants. And for some of you, that bothers you. But for me, that's the greatest thing in the world. Because it means God isn't sitting up in heaven like, you figure this out, Brian. What God is actually doing is he is moving in power throughout my life. The idea that God is actually changing people's minds instead of my own to accomplish his purposes isn't something that I hate. It's something that I love. It's that our God will step in. And he will do whatever he wants to do. And that bothers you philosophically of how God can interfere with your free will. That's fine. It can bother you. But God is who he is. And you do not get a vote. He is Yahweh. He does whatever he pleases. Verse 10. says, this official told Daniel, I am afraid of the Lord, the king. Now, now look here. It says the official told Daniel. And you'll see in your Bible, it probably says it this way too. I'm afraid of my Lord. You notice the Lord, word Lord there is not a capital L. It's a lowercase l which means it's not Yahweh. We said that word, the Lord, is the word Yahweh. This is a different Hebrew word that just simply means a person who's in charge. Here's what the official says. I'm afraid of my Lord, the king, who assigned your food and drink. Why should he see you looking worse than the other men your age? The king would then have my head because of you. Now, I want you to notice what's going on here. Daniel proposes, hey, hey, I really don't want to eat off your table or drink your wine. I don't want to be formed into the kind of person you're trying to form me into. And the person who's in charge of Daniel in that moment, like this low-level manager, is like, hey, I got to let you know, my job is to kind of fatten you up a little bit, make you look a little better, you're looking kind of scrawny, not looking so good. My job is to make you look good. And I really don't want to meet your request because I'm actually really afraid of King Nebuchadnezzar. He's going to chop my head off if this doesn't go well. So, so you notice what happens. This individual is not pushing back against Daniel because he thinks it's the right thing to do. He's pushing back against Daniel for the same reason all of us make decisions. See, again, the Bible isn't just describing what happened. It's describing what always happens. And there is a principle at play here. And I want you to write this principle down. Because if you are thoughtful, you will see this play out in every area of your life. Here's the principle. Whatever you fear most will control you. Whatever you fear most will control you. So here's what most of us think about fear. Most of us think fear is an emotion we feel. And it's true that there is an emotional side to fear. But what you don't understand is emotion is not just a thing you feel. It is actually something that dictates your life. Like, let me put it this way. If I brought my wife up on stage, drove her up to camp, and asked her, Danny, what are you most afraid of in the whole wide world? It would not even, the question would not even have gotten all the way asked before she told you clearly, snakes. 
She hates snakes. She's terrified of snakes. One time early in our relationship, I heard that, and I thought it'd be funny, so I changed the background of her phone to a snake. She threw it across the room and broke her phone. Like, that's what happened. She hates snakes. She wants nothing to do with snakes. And it's not just a thing she feels. It actually shapes how she operates in this world. Like, we live in this area with beautiful hiking trails that she has never been on. I'm like, why? She's like, the snakes find me on the trails. I'm like, I don't think they will. She goes, yes, they will. We were in Hawaii in 2010 for our honeymoon. And I remember we get there the first day. We're going down to the beach. We sit on the beach. I'm like, I'm going in the water. You coming with me, honey? She goes, absolutely not. I said, why? She goes, the sea snakes. I was like, the sea snakes? She goes, yeah. I said, I don't think that's the thing here. She goes, it could be. And so she did not, not one time did she go in the ocean while we were in Maui for eight nights. Not one time. Or it was like early on in marriage, um, we were living in this little apartment. We're living in this little apartment. And I'm in my room. And suddenly I hear her going, Brian, what have you done? And when a husband hears that, his heart just so I don't know. Probably, I don't know a lot of things. I don't know what I've done. I come out and she's staring at our screen door and our sliding glass door. And she goes, why did you leave this open? I was like, well, it was a hot day. I thought I'd get some fresh air in here. She goes, never do that again. I was like, why? She said, the snakes are going to come in. I said, I said, babe, we live on the second story. <laughs> and she looks me dead in the eye, serious as can be, and go, they'll slither up the pipes and find us. <laughs> she is terrified of snakes. And here's what happens. It's not just a feeling she has. It's something that actually shapes her behavior. It dictates how she acts because whatever you fear most will control you. Snakes are one thing. Raise your hand if you are terrified of spiders. Okay, a lot of you. Okay, so sh those of you terrified of spiders, there are zero chances that you're going to wander into the woods tomorrow and be like, look at this old rotten log. I wonder what's underneath it, right? Never going to happen. You're never going to reach your hand into like a dark hole, even if you dropped your cell phone in, because a spider might just crawl up your arm, right? Oh! Some of you are afraid of snakes. Some of you are afraid of spiders. Some of you are afraid of the dark, and no one likes to admit that by high school, but some of you have a little light in your room. You're like, it's not a night light. It's just a light that's on at night, right? Like... Like, because why, 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 listen, listen, shh, shh. whatever you fear most will control you. And it's fun to talk about snakes, and it's kind of funny to talk about spiders. It's totally true to talk about the dark. But you know what some of you are afraid of? You're afraid of conflict. And so you would actually rather stay in an unhealthy situation where you need to draw a boundary and say no to something, but you're actually so afraid of conflict that you never say no to anyone, and you end up making terrible decisions that you shouldn't make because you're more afraid of conflict than the result of your bad decisions. You're afraid of conflict. And so it controls you. You know what some of you are afraid of? Some of you are afraid of loneliness. Can I speak to you, young ladies, because I love you, I love you so much. Ladies, some of you are in relationships you have no business being in. He is not good, he is not kind, he is not faithful, he is harsh, he is mean, he is abusive. But some of you would rather be in a relationship with a bad guy than be alone. You're so afraid of being alone that you'd rather be in a relationship you have no business being in. Listen, listen. Whatever you fear most will control you. You know what it is for some of you? You're terrified of the opinion of your mom. And so you don't honor your mom. You don't just obey your parents. You're just terrified at any moment to do anything or think anything or say anything or believe anything or walk in any way that's different than she would. And this can follow you into your 20s. Some of you leaders still have this. You're in college or you're past college and you're still just terrified of what your mom thinks about your life. You're so terrified of what she thinks that she shapes your behavior. See, feelings aren't just something we feel. It dictates and shapes our life. It's true for risk. Some of you are so terrified of being embarrassed that you'll never actually put your skill and your talent and your beauty into this world. 
So you'll never actually write that song or be part of the worship team. You'll never actually preach that sermon. You'll never actually create that art or release anything beautiful in the world because you're so terrified of being criticized. You're so terrified of being embarrassed. Here's what happens. Whatever we fear most controls us. And Daniel knows this. And Daniel identifies this. And I want you to understand this, that this is a profoundly Christian principle. It's a profoundly biblical principle. Because here's one of the most famous and well-known verses in the book of Proverbs. Proverbs chapter 9, verse 10 says this, that the fear of the Lord, the fear of Yahweh, is the beginning of wisdom. And here's what I want you to know. If it's true that whatever you fear most will control you, the most important thing for you to fear is God himself. If you want to be a resilient, faithful follower of Jesus, follower of Yahweh, in a culture that hates you, in a culture that's turned its back on God, you must become someone who fears God above all else. Why? Because whatever you fear most will control you. And what do I want for my life? I want God to call the shots. I want him to control me. Now people get all stirred up on this. Oh, I'm supposed to fear God. Aren't I supposed to love God? And the answer is yes to both. You're supposed to love God and you're supposed to fear God. And those two things aren't in conflict. They actually sit nicely together in harmony. Here's the best image I have. And every image about God ever is imperfect. But let me give you at least one that's found in the scriptures. Let me show you this little stock photo of a bunch of guys sitting around a fire. I didn't take this photo. I got it off the internet. It's, it's lovely. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I googled dudes sitting around a fire. Here we are. So, so here's the thing you know about fire. Fire is two things at one time. The first is fire is inviting. You can write that down. Fire is inviting. You notice anytime there's a fire, like we're just kind of like drawn to it. Like even if you're not going to sit around it, like there's a part of your eye that's drawn to it. You almost can't not see it. If a candle is lit or there's a fire or there's a fire on the side of the road, you're just kind of like drawn to it. Fire is inviting. Fire says, look at me, come near me. I want you to be near me. But fire is also at the same time, write this down, it's terrifying. Fire, fire is simultaneously inviting and terrifying, right? Because that fire is lovely and it's beautiful, but if you got your hand in and touched it, you would have to go to the hospital. If that fire ever jumped out of that little circle and lit the trees all up here on fire, we would all be dead. Here's what you need to know. Here's what you already know about fire. Shh. Fire is simultaneously inviting and terrifying. And the thing I need you to know about Yahweh, about the God of the Bible, is that he is simultaneously inviting and terrifying. He is a God who says, come near me, see my light, see my warmth, be around me, get close to me, be right up near me, but don't you play with me. Don't you play with me. We even have this phrase, right? It says, don't play with fire, right? Like God will not be trifled with. He will not be mocked. He will not be belittled. He will not be played with or toyed with or deceived. He cannot be. God will not be mocked. You will reap what you sow. And what the scriptures describe is a God who is simultaneously worthy of our love and also worthy of our fear. Like fire, like the fire he reveals himself to Moses in when he says, I am Yahweh, I am who I am. The God of the Bible is inviting. Like when we worship him, we gather around him. But he is not to be messed with. He's not to be deceived. He's not to be mocked or, or trifled with or, or played with. The God of the Bible is this. He is worthy of our love. And he is worthy of our fear. And here's what I need you to know tonight. If you have no fear of God, you have no understanding of God. If you have no fear of God in your heart, you have no understanding of the God of the Bible. If the God you believe in is simply this nice guy who sits in heaven and smiles at you and says, whatever you want to do, honey, you do it. If that's what you think God is like, you have no understanding of the God of the Bible. He is simultaneously inviting and terrifying, worthy of our love and worthy of our fear. Verse 11 goes on this way. 
It says, Daniel said to the guard whom the chief official had appointed over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, please test your servants for 10 days. Give us nothing but vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then compare our appearance with that of the young men who eat the royal food and treat your servants in accordance with what you see. So again, the burden for Daniel isn't eating the food or not eating the food. The burden for Daniel is he wants to be different. And so he chooses to do something different. And the thing he chooses to do here in the scriptures, he chooses to say, instead of eating the nice food on the table, I'm going to choose a different diet for 10 days. I'm going to have vegetables and water only. Now listen, sometimes what people try to do is they try to say like, see, the book of Daniel promotes this kind of diet where you don't eat meat or you don't eat nice things, you just eat vegetables. And like, listen, we can have a whole discussion about vegetables and diet and all that kind of stuff. But here's what I want you to know. Like the point of this story is not their diet. The point of this story is their devotion. The point of this story is not their diet. The point of the story is their devotion, their decision that they're not going to be just like everyone else. Like this diet is not sustainable. Back in 2019, um, God called me into a season of fasting. And I don't know why, I just know that, that in those days, God was really doing a new thing in my heart. Uh, and so I really felt compelled to actually do this, this Daniel fast. So for 10 days in 2019, January 1st of 2019 to January 10th, all I ate was vegetables and water. I didn't even add salt or anything. I was just like, I'm just going all in on this. And let me tell you two things. Number one, I lost 19 pounds in 10 days. Yeah, it was wild. No, no, no. But listen, listen, listen. Um, but, but, but hear me, hear me. This, shh, and, and don't get excited. This is not a sustainable diet, right? There's no protein. There are no fats. There's like the nutrients aren't, like this is not like, here's a new diet if you want to lose weight. Again, the point for me in 2019 was not the diet. The point was the devotion. The point was me saying to God, I am willing to do something that sets me apart and makes me look weird. On January 3rd of that year, it was my brother's birthday. I got invited to BJ's with 20 different people. And it came around the order. They were like, I'll have a burger. I'll have spaghetti. I'll have this. I'll have a pizza. And it got to me. I was like, I'll have a dish of asparagus, please, with no seasoning. And I looked weird in that moment. But you know what I had to do? I had to decide ahead of time I was cool looking weird. Because it wasn't about the diet. It was about my devotion. It was about me saying to God, I'm willing to look weird. I'm willing to look different. I'm willing to look strange if it means that I get to walk in faithfulness to you. And then here's how it goes in verse 14. I want you to see how this story rolls. Here's how it ends today. It says, so he agreed and tested them for 10 days. 10 days, all they ate were vegetables and water. At the end of 10 days, they, this is Daniel and his three friends, looked healthier and better nourished than any of the young men who ate the royal food. So... The guards took away their choice food, the wine and the food at the king's table, and they, they, they were to drink, and gave them vegetables instead. So, so this is kind of like a fascinating end to the story. Because what happens here is so clear. Like, Daniel and his friends decide they're not going to eat the food from the table. They're going to be different. They chose ahead of time to be different because they didn't want to be shaped and formed by Babylon, but rather wanted to be distinct, holy, and different people that God had called them to be. And so they choose to do vegetables and water only, which again, I already told you, is not a sustainable way to eat. That's not like a great diet to try for the rest of your life. You'll die, right? Don't do that. But here's what they do. They decide to do this for a period of time. And here's what happens. This is wild. They look healthier. They look better. They don't look malnourished. They actually look better than the other people who were brought into this. It's like an A and B test group. This one eating from the king's table. This one eating vegetables and water only. And the people who look better aren't the people who are eating the better food. It's, it's the people who are basically fasting. The people who are eating vegetables and water only. They're successful. But you know what's so interesting about their success here? They're still in Babylon. It's not like they looked better so they got to go back home. It's like they looked better and they were still in Babylon. And yet for them, this was an incredible victory. 
And it was an incredible victory, not because they just wanted to eat this food rather than that food. It was an incredible victory because they, in that moment, decided ahead of time, I will not let Babylon shape me. I will not be formed by this culture. I will not be discipled by this culture that is not honoring who God is. And how did they do that? They did it by choosing to eat vegetables and water. And here's the question I want to end with tonight. How did they know? How did they know that that's what they were supposed to do? Because they could have chosen anything. They could have been like, we'll have the food, but not the wine. Or we'll only have a little bit. But instead, they decided to go with vegetables and water only. And here's what you need to know. There wasn't like this clear like, option, you can have vegetables or wine. They just made that choice seemingly out of thin air. How did they know that that is exactly what God wanted them to do? And here's my contention for you. The reason Daniel and his friends knew what they were supposed to do to be different is because Daniel and his friends, it's so obvious from the book of Daniel, deeply and profoundly know the word of God. They are a people who know what God has to say to them through his word. And if you want to be a person who is not shaped and molded and discipled and formed by the culture all around us, but rather are shaped and molded and formed by Jesus himself, you need to do the same thing. If you want to know how to go back to your home, back to your football team, back to your theater program, back to your school, back to wherever, if you want to know how to go back there and not be formed by that culture, you need to know God's will for your life, his specific will for your life. And here's the way you know the will of God. It's that the word of God allows the people of God to know the will of God. Write this down. The word of God allows the people of God to know the will of God. Like when I know the word of God, when I know the Bible, I know what he has to say. I know what God is saying. It allows me, the people of God, to know his specific will for my life. Like when you read the Bible, you start to understand God's will for your life because you start to know what God sounds like. Like I wonder if this has ever happened to you. I wonder if you've ever gotten a text from a friend. And the text was from the friend, it came from their number, it popped up on your phone, but their first thought when you got the text is, I don't think they sent this. Maybe you've ever gotten a text like this where you get a text from a friend or you get a text from someone else and it's like, I think someone else picked up their phone and texted me this. And how does that happen? The reason you know that your friend didn't text you is because you know what your friend sounds like. You've seen their texts a thousand times before. Like some of your friends never use punctuation when they text, ever. Point to your friend right now who never uses punctuation. They never use it. Listen, 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 listen. I'm sorry, I stirred up strife. I stirred up division. I repent. Okay, all right, listen, listen, listen. Shh. Bring it back, bring it back, bring it back. Shh. Shh. So, no, 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 bring it back, bring it back. I lost you. Shh. If, 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 if you got a text from that friend and it was perfectly punctuated, there were periods and there were commas and proper exclamation points, not at the end of everything, but just a few times. And then there were like a semicolon. You're like, I don't even know what that is, right? And that's all in there. You would be like, that didn't come from this person. Why? Because you know what that person sounds like. You want to know what God sounds like? Read his word. He'll tell you exactly what he sounds like. That way, the next time you're in a situation, you're like, I don't know what God's will is. I don't know what he's supposed to do. And you start to listen to God, you'll know exactly what God sounds like. And if you want to know the will of God, if you want to be a person who knows the will of God through the word of God, you have got to bring the Bible to the center of your life. You have got to become a person who doesn't just say, yeah, I know I'm supposed to read the Bible. Yeah, I guess I'll try to read the Bible a little better. You have got to become a person who becomes obsessed with it, who knows it and loves it and brings it right to the center, right to the core of who you are. And if you are going to do that tonight, you need to do three things. And I want you to write down these three things if you're taking notes. The three things you must do. Number one, you need to crush your excuses. Number two, you need to create a plan. 
Number three, you need to cultivate a lifestyle. Number one, crush your excuses. Number two, create a plan. Number three, cultivate a lifestyle. Let's start with crushing your excuses. The very first thing you must do if you are going to read the Bible regularly and make that a central part of your life is you must get to the bottom of the lousy, awful, terrible excuses you and I make for not reading the Bible. I'm going to give you at least four tonight. Here's the first one. This is my favorite one because we all love to say it. It makes us feel important. Brian, I would love to read the Bible. I'm just so busy. Man, I'm just slammed. I'll tell you, my life is crazy. You don't understand. I go to school. I go to work. I have to hang out with my brother and my sister and watch them. I have to take care of things at home. You don't understand how busy I am. And listen, I think that excuse was valid until 2018. You go, 2018, what happened there? I'll tell you exactly what happened in 2018. iPhone released a little thing called the screen time report for your week. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I know. And you swipe over. And like, listen, like, I, I don't even need to go further here. The moment you swipe over, you're like, I'm not actually as busy as I thought I was. Like, I don't have 15 minutes to read my Bible. Uh, but surely there's like hours and hours. But listen, here's what I've learned. Shaming you about like your screen time never really works. But here's what I just know. Um, you make time for things you care about. I know this is true. Like if you went home from camp and you had a little like dental issue, a toothache, and it was really hurting and keeping you up at night, you wouldn't be like, I need to go see a dentist, but I don't got time, no time, I'm super slammed. Or let me put it this way, uh, guys, I love you, so I'm going to pick on you, all right? Um, here's what I imagine. Um, imagine, I don't know if this happens in your church or at your camps, probably never happens here, uh, but I want you to imagine you have come to Hume Lake Christian Camps and you have developed the all-famous, world-famous Camp Crush, okay? Now, I, no, I know it never happens to you guys, but imagine this, this is hypothetical. Um, so, listen, listen. You go through the whole week of camp, and you got your camp crush, and you're like waving at her from across, you know, the chapel, and you're like, oh, I'm in love, and we're going to get married probably next month. Um, and, and, and then, shh, no, no, listen, 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 shh, shh. So, 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 you have your camp crush, and you get home from camp, and you're there Saturday night, and you go home, and you shower, and you have dinner with mama because she makes you a homemade meal, and that just feels so good after camp. And you're getting ready for bed, and then a text comes in, it's from her. Oh, oh. <laughs> Oh, oh, and then, and then, and then, and then, shh. So it says, hey, uh, I don't know if you're busy, but tomorrow night, a bunch of us from camp, uh, a handful of us, we're, we're going to go out to, like, dinner. And so, I, I, like, I don't know if you want to, but, like, would you want to join? So here, here's what's not going to happen. There is no guy in this room who is in a right and proper state of mind who would go, you know, that is a really nice invitation, but I'm just Slam tomorrow. I am so busy. Why? Because you make time for things you care about. And what I want you to know is that you make time for the word of God. Number one, you make time. Excuse number two. Excuse number two. Excuse number two is this one. And it's actually a valid one. It's a valid one. I don't read the Bible because the Bible is confusing. Now, you know why this is a valid one? There is actually a writer in the Bible, Peter, who references another writer in the Bible, Paul. And he says, some of what Paul writes is confusing. And when I read that verse, I'm like, oh, thank you. I'm not alone. I have gone to school. I have undergraduate degree. I have a master's degree in the Bible. And sometimes I read a verse in the Bible and I go, huh? It is confusing. So I'm just going to give that to you. But here's the problem. Every other thing that is confusing in your life, you don't throw up your hands and go, well, I give up. What do you do if something has confused you in this world? You all do the same thing. You go to the Google machine and you type in how to fix my toaster, right? That's what you do. So imagine, imagine, imagine. Imagine you have, imagine you have an Xbox or a PlayStation 
and you get it, it's brand new, you're so excited, you plug it in, you fire it up, you're ready to play, you're excited to go, and suddenly on the screen it says error code, error code 4287. 4287. Anyone here know what error code 4287 is? No, you don't. But here's what would happen. There's not a single one of you who would be like, 4287, never heard of it. I give up. I guess I'll never use it, right? What would you do? You would go to the Google. You would look it up. You would know. You would understand. Why? Because we research things we care about. That's what we do when we care about something, when it's interesting to us. So you want to know, shh, you want to know what one of the best investments you could ever make in your life is? Like for like 25, 30 bucks, you can buy yourself a study Bible that has notes that like has verses and then confusing verses. It says, this verse is confusing. Let us explain it to you. 25, 30 bucks. Some of you will spend more on that on like Chick-fil-A on your drive home, right? Like, like, like 25, 30 bucks. We research things we care about. All right, number three. Number three. Number three is the excuse that I'm just not a reader. I love this one. Because in high school, I played football. I was like, I'm not a reader, I'm an athlete. That's what I do. And I love the excuse that I'm not a reader. Here's the only problem. I'm reading things all the time. Like if you're a driver and you have your driver's license or permit, you're driving around town and you're not looking at the street signs. You're like, I don't know where to turn because I don't really read, right? <laughs> In fact, I think you guys as a generation, shh, I think you read more than any generation I've ever heard of. Like you're just constantly on your phone scrolling through, looking at things, seeing captions, reading the cap. Da, da, da. You're just constantly reading things. Like you're reading all the time. Like, gentlemen, I picked on you, so ladies, it's your turn. Um, so, um, so ladies, 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 shh, shh, shh. I want you to imagine, um, you, again, hypothetically, probably never happens, but you have the world famous Camp Crush. And, and you get home, and, and, and you unload your bag, and you take a shower, and mama makes you a home-cooked meal, and you're hanging out with your family, you're trying to get ready for bed, you're sitting in the living room, you're just kind of hanging out, and a text comes in, and it's from him. I know, I know, but it gets better, it gets better, shh. It gets better. You see the preview of the text, and then you open the text, and it's a multi-pager. Oh my goodness, it goes on and on and on, oh. It's so beautiful, it's so beautiful. Shh. Ladies, look me in the eye right now. There is not a single one of you in this room who would go, huh, looks like he poured out my, his heart to me, but I am not a reader. Mom, would you read this for me? Why? Because you read things you care about and the God of the universe wrote you a letter. He has something to say to you. Read it, know it, listen to it. And then here's, here's the final excuse. Um, final excuse kind of sits around the area of like, the Bible's too hard to learn. There's too many things to memorize. I have to know too many things. I'm just not really good at memorization. So every time I read it, I get kind of lost and confused. I don't memorize things really well. And again, we love to say that, but it's not really true. Because you have all sorts of things. Like when I got up here on last night or this morning, well, uh, this morning when I was preaching and, and introduced you to my family, I didn't have to be like, I have a wife and her name is Danny. And my children's names are Right, I didn't have to do that, right? I know it because they matter to me, like they're precious to me. And here's what's funny, you've memorized things that aren't even precious to you. Like I live in the Los Angeles area and it is amazing how many grown men 
will look me in the eyes and say, Brian, the Bible's just too hard to memorize, too many facts, too many things to keep in my head. I can't keep up with it all. But then on the same breath, on the same day, they would be able to tell me the entire starting lineup for the Los Angeles Dodgers. Like they could just rattle off and here's the thing, that's constantly changing. The Bible never changes. Like it just stays the same. And these men know, like some of you memorized all the state capitals growing up. And so you know, like in, in, in case that's ever useful for you. Or let's try this one. There was a song that came out when most of you were still in diapers. And um, I am going to bless your soul tonight by beginning to sing it. Wait, 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 wait. And, and, and some people have said I'm too good at singing, but we'll see. Um, so here's what I want to do. I'm going to start singing the song. And if you happen to know this song that was written and released when you were still in diapers... I want you to sing along with me, okay? Does that sound like a good challenge? All right, here we go. <coughs> All right, here we go. Shh. So I put my hands up, they're playing my song. The butterflies fly away. Nodding my head like, yeah. Moving my hips like, yeah. So I put my hands up, they're playing my song. I know it's gonna be okay. Yeah, it's a party in the USA. Yeah. Stop saying you can't memorize things. You have locked that to memory. And here's what's beautiful about the scriptures. Shh. The book of Psalms says, I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Like when you know the word of God, the will of God starts to seep through your entire life. So shh. You have memorized all kinds of things. You have the intellectual capacity. You can do it. You know it. So you crush your excuses. You crush the excuses of, I don't have time. I'm not really a reader. It's confusing. There's too much to remember. I can't really do it. You crush that excuse in your life. The three things you must do to move the Bible to the center of your life. Number one, you crush your excuses. Number two, if you remember, you create a, you create a plan. Here's what I've learned. Shh. The only people, the only people who are successful at reading their Bible daily or almost every day, are the people who have a plan. Like I've never met a Christian who's like, I'm so inspired from camp. And so they get home every day and they do what I call the lucky flip. They just kind of go. <laughs> and David said, you know, like this is just like this really confusing thing and you move along. You create a plan. And listen, listen, don't overcomplicate this. People ask me, what kind of Bible reading plan should I do? And my answer is always the same. Whichever one you'll actually do. So here's the deal. Decide when you're going to do it. Don't just be like, ah, it'll happen. Is it early in the morning or are you an early riser? Do it then. If you're like, I'm not an early riser. God is awake at night too. Do it then. Like, like just pick a time. It could be lunchtime. It could be with break time. It could be whatever. When are you going to do it? Where are you going to read? Don't just be like, ah, oh, I don't know. I'll figure it out. Find a Bible reading plan. If you're like, I don't know how to find a Bible reading plan. Go to the Google machine. Type in Bible reading plan. There are like 100 million of them. Where am I going to read? What am I going to read? When am I going to read? How long am I going to read that for before I go to something else? You create a plan. It's the same way you do anything else meaningful in your life. Like, listen, if you are an athlete, your trainer, your coach has you on a program. If I am trying to get in shape, I do not go to the gym on one day and then do bench press. And then the next day I do swimming. And the next day I sit in the steam room for an hour. And the next day I do Pilates. And then I do nothing for six weeks and repeat that cycle. That would not help. Listen, listen, listen. That would do very, very little for me. Why? It's random. There's no building. There's no plan or direction toward it. 
what you need to do is come up with a plan. And here's what I want you to know. That plan isn't for post-camp. I would love for some of you, before you go to bed tonight, to settle a plan that begins tomorrow morning. Tomorrow morning. And if you were looking at me here and going, I have no idea how to create a plan to read the Bible. I don't even know where to start. That is a fair question. And I don't want to shame you for that. Some of you have never read the Bible in your life and you don't even know how to start. Here's what I want to invite you toward. There is a group of men and women here who will be able to help. Listen to me. I want you to only answer. I'm about to ask a question. You are only allowed to answer this question if you're a counselor, youth pastor, leader, students. You've got to stay quiet for this to work. Counselors, leaders, youth pastors. If one of your students came up to you tonight, tomorrow, sometime this week and say, I would love to read the Bible regularly, but I don't even know where to start. Would you, counselor, youth pastor, leader, be willing to sit down with them and create a personalized, individual plan for them where they can learn to read the Bible on their own? If so, I want you to just answer that question, yes or no, on three. One, two, three. Yes! Shh, students, did, sh did you hear that? Shh, don't miss that. All your excuses just left this building. All of them. Because there are men and women here who have given up work, who have given up life, who have given up everything to be here and invest in you. And there's no reason for you to not leave Hume Lake with a plan of how you're going to read your Bible. Number one, we crush our excuses. Number two, we create a plan. Number three, we cultivate a lifestyle. Here's what it means. Some of you need to make this shift from I am supposed to read my Bible to something else. I am a Bible reader. It is similar to the shift where you go from I'm supposed to exercise and train and work out to I am an athlete. It's the shift from, I don't know if I'm going to sign up for the musical this fall, to I am in the theater arts, that's what I do. It's the shift from, mm, I don't know if I'm supposed to study, to I am a student. It becomes your identity. It is who you are. And you build it into your life as normal. And you don't play this game where you're like, well, if I can keep the streak going after camp, then I'll keep it going. But if the streak ever ends, I'll stop. There's like an obsession with streaks right now in our culture. How long can you keep things going? Let me tell you something. If you miss... Here's the rule. Never miss two days in a row. That's the rule. You just never miss two days in a row. It's like this. I want you to imagine there was a certain day where you were sick or traveling or something went kind of sideways and weird. And you woke up the next morning and realized, wow, yesterday I didn't even brush my teeth. There is not a single person here who would be like, I guess my streak is over. I'll never brush my teeth again. <laughs> what do you do? You pick up your toothbrush and you do it the next day. You never miss two days in a row. Shh. You cultivate a lifestyle. You cultivate a lifestyle that says this isn't just something I'm supposed to do. It's part of who I am. It's as normal to me as brushing my teeth and eating my breakfast and getting dressed in the morning. It's just part of who I am. I remember when this clicked for me. I was 15 years old and I was at a winter camp that my church was doing up at Lake Tahoe. It was 2004, January 1st of 2004 to be specific and God had just been moving in my heart that week. And he's been so powerfully speaking to me about his word. And I had all my excuses. I'm not a reader. I don't have time. I just know the Bible's born. I don't know. I had all these things stirred up in my heart. And yet here's what happened. God moved so powerfully because he spoke to me. Remember I said how, this is how God accomplishes everything. He speaks and his words change reality. And here's what happened. God spoke to me in a powerful way. And he spoke to me in a powerful way in a powerful place. And years later, I actually got to drive back to that same spot in Lake Tahoe and snapped a little picture of this dock right here looking out over Lake Tahoe. So, so, so here it was. So, so here it was, here it was. <clears throat> January 1st of 2004. Shh. Everything around this dock, this was in the summer obviously, but everything was covered in snow, including the dock. But I got up early that morning, I walked to the very end of that dock and I dangled my feet off the edge and I sat there and I talked to the creator of the universe. I said, God, I love you. I want you to be my obsession. I want you to be my life. I want to give everything to you. And the response was so clear from him. Just read my word. Just read the Bible. 
Not just sometimes, but all the time. Make yourself the type of person who reads the Bible. And I had tried it before and I had failed and I had said I was going to do it before and I did. But for some reason, God met me in power at the edge of that dock in Lake Tahoe on January 1st of 2004 and it changed my entire life. And since that day, there are probably, I don't know, a handful of times I haven't read the Bible. Maybe there was a day I was sick or traveling or couldn't. But God just has radically changed my life through choosing day after day after day to read his word. God changed my life January 1st of 2004, right at the edge of that dock. And everyone in this room, eyes on me right now, there is no reason this week that you cannot go find your own dock, your own place to meet with the maker of the universe and commit to him that you are going to be someone who listens to what he has to say for the rest of your life that you shift from someone who knows they're supposed to read the Bible to I am a Bible reader. I dare you to read God's word over and over and over again for the rest of your life and watch what he does when you listen to what the God of the universe has to say. Go find your own doc this week. Watch what God does with that. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for tonight. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the story of Daniel and the person who knew your word and knew your will and decided, resolved himself, decided ahead of time that he would not be shaped and formed by these Babylonians, but rather shaped and formed by your word. God, help us to be a people who do the same. God, I pray for the young man or woman who was where I was at 15 years old, kind of on the edge, kind of knowing they should, kind of knowing it's a thing. God, rock their world this week. Change them. Meet them in power. God, do what you always do and speak. And when you speak, God, change the reality of our lives. We pray this in Christ's name, the resurrected one. And all God's people said real loud.